midst of this uh, sermon series on what is a church member. Well, first we had our Vision Sunday in uh, Ephesians in chapter 3 mainly. And then Corey last week brought a great message on what it means to be a church member. What does it mean to actually assemble with the people of God in the, in the, uh, in the context of everyday life? How is it that the church member lives together with the other church members in fellowship? And he, remember, even though he was in Ephesians 4 a good bit, he brought us over to Acts 2 to help us understand that they were sacrificing the things that they wanted as individuals to come together that all the needs of the body might be met. We, they were devoted, he said, to the fellowship of the saints. They were devoted to it. They sacrificed for it. And listen, if you're looking to be a member of a church without those two things in your mind and in your heart, you're going to really struggle. You're going to really have a tough time to fit in where God would have you to fit because the church is not meant for consumption. The church is not designed to be a place where everybody comes together for a few talented people, you know, like, like the, the special forces troops of the church to stand and perform for us each Sunday. So that, that sometimes we can slip into that mindset. I can slip into that. I can sleep into that, and so I, I can grade church services based on, well, I didn't like that song, and why did that guy play that instrument? And, you know, it's just, they didn't sing any song I've ever heard of, or when that guy prayed, you know, he just spent so much time talking about God, and I mean, I know we're about God, but I've got other things I want to talk to God about, you know, and we can just nitpick, can't we? Because we want what we want, and we want it right now, you know? My generation was the generation that grew up with Burger King, right? Burger King, have it your way. That was a slogan. McDonald's was roaring and they were franchising all over and so Burger King made it famous. Have it your way, you know. And that's what we want when it comes to church so often. We want it our way. And we're not unique in that. We're, that, that is the history of the people of God. Going all the way back into the old covenant, whenever they were delivered from the uh, throes of slavery in Egypt, what did the people refrain over and over again? Basically, God, we want to have it our way. And we want it our way. And so that sinful impulse in all of us can get uh, twisted and we can stop being devoted to the fellowship, you know. We can start getting our feelings hurt very easily, like, well, nobody loves me there, and I, nobody ever does uh, anything for me, and, and what are they really adding to my life there at the church, you know, or we can stop being sacrificial. That's our temptations. Well, those, those things happen so quickly in the history of the church, and we're going to begin Acts 6 this morning, but in, in that uh, way, I want to build a quickly a, a context for us, okay? Just really quickly. We were in Acts a couple of years ago and went through, and so you guys, this is a refresher for those who have been in Grace Fellowship. I don't need to preach the first five chapters to get to the sixth chapter. But as a guy who really is devoted to not being a topical preacher, if you know me and you've been around me anytime, I talk about being topositional. When it's necessary to be topical, which it is sometimes, and I think this month is that month for us, I try to be expositional in the topical treatment of Acts chapter 6. So if we think the church, the assembly of the new covenant is birthed in chapter 1 and chapter 2. They're waiting on the Spirit. Jesus tells them to wait until the Spirit comes on them. The Spirit comes on them. And just like at Mount Sinai when God assembled Israel for the first time at the foot of the mountain, He assembled His people in Jerusalem. 
The new covenant people mirror what happened in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Spirit came. God came to the mountain and thunder and lightning and roaring took place. And so much so that people were terrified of of what they were seeing, what they were hearing, what they were experiencing. Well, that's the same thing we see in Acts chapter 2, isn't it? The people are terrified in the presence of God because the wind is blowing and this rush is happening all around them. And the men are standing up and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and each person's hearing it in their own tongues and they're amazed. As a matter of fact, they're so amazed they think they've got drunk preachers. And so Peter stands up and says, these men are not drunk, but they are filled with the Spirit as the prophet Joel told us. Told us. In the last days, the Spirit will come on your sons and your daughters, and they will prophesy in my name. And you are having this done right now in your presence. But it's key. When he starts preaching, he says that he opened his mouth and he spoke these words. Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. That that is the cornerstone of the Christian church. Jesus, the proclamation of the name of Jesus. That's our message. And so... Chapter 2, they're devoted to one another, sacrificing their lives for one another, and they're using every talent, gift, everything they have, they're marshalling those forces towards the community so that all the needs are being met and the word is going forth in power and people are being saved. In chapter 3, they start to face persecution. In chapter 4, they continue in persecution and each time they're persecuted, the church grows. It doesn't shrink, it grows. Satan's after them, so the first plan of attack is persecution. So they're they're persecuted. And then the expectation is it'll fall apart. But it doesn't. It wields them, it brings them together, welds them together in the faith. And then he says, okay, well, that didn't work. We'll deceive them. So he sent Ananias and Sapphira to lie about a gift that they were giving to the Lord. And when they lied, this would sow deceit. And that way everyone would become phonies and fakes and hypocrites. And God struck them dead. And the congregation was in awe of God. And they began to worship God, and the community spread again. The community grew. More people were added to it. And so he had tried to persecute them to death. He had tried to deceive them into wandering from God's plan for their life. He couldn't do either of those. So what did he do? He brought division. He brought division to them. In Acts 6, look what it says in verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles. And they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. As we read this text, we're confronted with a lot of things, and I told somebody this morning, y'all pray for me, because this is actually a, this is a sermon series, right? We could just slow down here. There's a, there is a ton of ecclesiology, 
teachings about what does the church look like right here in this passage. I want to first off say this is descriptive of what took place in Jerusalem, not prescriptive. What do I mean by that? We don't have to do everything exactly. There's no command to us here, do these things this way. But there is an example being set for us. And so we see these things as a description of how God was forming and shaping the church through the ministry of the apostles. The first thing we see is that they were all together. The very meaning of the word was that the, of a, the name church is that it is an assembly. There's no such thing as a church that doesn't have church members that get together regularly, frequently, throughout time together. They have to come together. That is what the word means. It means to assemble, to come together in one place. So they came together. How many of them? Well, we know 5,000 men had come to Christ. That's what we learn in chapter 5. 5,000 men came to Christ. And, and you know, that's, that's in addition uh, as they had grown. Because it was 3,000 on Pentecost, and then it grew, and then it grew. And then we get to Acts 5, and it says 5,000 men were together. They were doing life together in Jerusalem, going house to house and worshiping Christ and ministering in his name. And so the body was growing, it was multiplying, and this problem came up. This, this problem arose. And what was the problem? Well, the Hebrew Christians were not paying the right affection and attention and love to the Greek Christians. So what we have here when we see Hellenist, what that word means in the text is that they are Jewish people who have probably come to Jerusalem to die. This, this is interesting. They're in the diaspora. They're all over the world. But these older saints are coming to Jerusalem. Why? Because they want to die in Jerusalem and they want to be buried in Jerusalem because they're waiting on the return of Jesus Christ. That's what most scholars believe. So you've got this huge number of Greek Jewish people. They spoke Greek. They lived in a Greek lifestyle. They weren't raised in Jerusalem. Many of them may have never even been to the city before they were old and widowed. And they come looking to die. And what do the Hebrew Christians who've lived there their whole life say? Well, it seems like what they were saying was, go to the back of the line. You know, we've got our old folks too. We're going to care for them. And if we get around to it, we'll take care of you. This favoritism sprung up in the church. That never happens in church. That never, I mean, that was a one-off, right? That we like these people, but, you know, these other folks over here. That happens, doesn't it? And it's a tactic of the enemy to destroy the church. Look how these wise leaders took the problem and treated it like an opportunity. They came out before the people. Rather than being distracted by the, the many common needs the people had of service, which were legitimate needs, I would say. They were very legitimate needs. Rather than get off track, in verse 2 it says, they summoned the people, the full number of the disciples, they brought them together, and they, they made a, a statement to them. What did they say? Well, we cannot give ourselves to the task of the table. We can't do that. Because why? Because we're too good for that? Because we as apostles slash elder pastors, teachers, that's, that's really what we see here. They're acting and functioning as the pastors at Jerusalem. We, 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 that's beneath us. You know, this whole taking care of the needy and meeting the needs of the poor, like that's, that's somebody else's job because we're really important. Is that what they say? Absolutely not. That's not what they say. Look what they say. They said, listen, listen, it's not right that we should give up what? 
preaching the word to go and serve these tables. What we see here is not the putting down of practical ministry, but rather the elevation of the preaching of God's word. Listen, any organization, there are many of them, thousands of them, that will do a great job of meeting the need of the impoverished. There are many human organizations that give night and day to caring for people's practical needs. But there is only one institution under heaven given to the preaching of God's word, and that is God's church. And these pastors said, we will not forego the preaching of God's word. Because if we don't preach God's word, no one will preach God's word. And the purpose of our lives, the very meaning and purpose of our lives is to preach and pray that the name of Christ be exalted and magnified. They're not saying serving people isn't important. Matter of fact, look at, look at this with me. Look at this with me. In verse 3, they said, pick out from among yourselves seven men, what? Of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit, and wisdom. But, notice verse 4, we will be devoted. We will be devoted. You're devoted, we're going to be devoted. What are we devoted to? Prayer and to the service, the word's ministry in the English, it means service, to the service of the word. Listen, the church is bedrock built on Jesus Christ, and we can only know Christ through the proclamation of his word. And so what they're saying is we're going to serve Christ by preaching the word of God, bathed in prayer, that the name of Christ be exalted. And what we need you to do in verse 3 is choose for yourself, congregation, men who are the very best men among you. They didn't say, hey man, go get the scrub team, assemble them. This is light work they got to do over here. It's not that big of a deal. That's not what they said. What the apostles set a pattern of is setting apart the best to serve the least. Church, give us your best men Men that are of great reputation and trustworthy, filled with integrity. Men of character, known among you, full of the Holy Spirit. They're just not good dudes. They are driven by the Spirit, and they display great wisdom. We need your best. We need your best. If we were putting it in military terms, the, the generals, the apostles, were saying, Go get the Marines. Go get the Marines. We need an expeditionary force in this congregation to go out and seek out the mission of serving God's people with God's things. All that we have belongs to him. And so we will entrust it to the very best among us. We will give it to the very best among us. Now, don't get lost up in the marine analogy. That's just one analogy. That doesn't mean you army folks aren't significant. We know without the army, the marines would fail, right? No, so we're not getting a military lesson here. But everybody knows, everybody knows what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is man, don't get me guys in, uh, that, that are just kind of back row sitters. Don't give me those guys. Give me the guys that want to be in the teeth of it. Give me the guys that want to get in the trenches. Give me the guys that have the reputation that they can deal with delicate situations, filled with the Spirit and applying great biblical wisdom. That's who we need. And, man, the church did it. Listen, without any heavy-handed leadership, what did the church do? These godly leaders put together a plan that the people responded to, and look at their response. It's not, uh, it's not written, but the names tell it to us. Who is it that's being forgotten at the tables? 
It's the Greek speakers. It's the Hellenists. They're the ones among all of the church of Jerusalem that feel left out. So what the congregation does instinctively, because the Spirit was at work in them, is they set apart Greek men. All of these men are Greek. Why? They're all named with Greek names. They're not traditional Hebrew people. They're not probably Aramaic speakers. They most likely come from among the minority. Do you see how God works within his church wisely when good leadership is offered to say, hey, there is a cornerstone, bedrock, uncompromisable thing that must be done, and that is the preaching of God's word. We are devoted to that and prayer. But what we want you to do is choose from among yourselves men of high character and, and reputation, men filled with the Holy Spirit, men characterized by wisdom. And the church displays wisdom by setting apart men that aren't just good men in the congregation, but they're men that are from the minority. If you, if you could just think about that a little in your own life. I don't want to make a sermon out of this on deacons. But so often we try to solve the problem by putting people like us in charge. But what these wise saints did filled with the Holy Spirit said, we're going to put people not like us in charge. This problem needs help, and we want to give it the very best help. Isn't that fantastic? So what we see here is a problem with the potential for division. Instead of it being a problem, it becomes an opportunity for unity. That's what the apostles did. We see here a commitment to the Word of God. Above all things, we will preach the Word and pray. We will preach the Word and pray. But we want the very best you've got, congregation, to serve the people. Now look, at, look back with me in, verse, in chapter 5, really quickly. In chapter 5, we have, this, uh, we, have, we have this description of all of these uh, mighty uh, works that are being done, and the people are, are busy about the work of the church, and the apostles are arrested. That's a, that's a great story. They're arrested by the, the priest, and, and they're thrown into jail, and then God lets them loose. And what does God tell them to do? Go back to the temple where you were when they arrested you and keep preaching. And so the high priest shows up to put them on trial and, and they're like, well, uh, the doors are locked and all the other prisoners are here, but those guys you arrested yesterday, they're not here. Well, where are they? Well, they're preaching in the temple again, you know, <laughs> hard-headed. So they go out, and, and we see this happening. And then as we continue on through the text, we come, we come, to, uh, we come over to verse 38. And it says, so in the present in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan of, or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to be opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And then that's when this dispute arose to distract them from that. Because what the last thing Satan wants is for them to be doing the ministry. What the apostles were, what the pastor teachers, as Corey's going to tell us next week, are all about, they are the mouthpiece of God in the local congregation. So that's why it's so key that we not just give our opinions, talk about the modern problems of the world, try to diagnose psychology for you, give you a self-help seminar when you come here. We are given to this word. 
right? This is the word of God. And so the pastor teachers are the mouthpiece of God to the congregation. But listen to this. What we see in our text is that the deacons are the hands and feet of Jesus. Jesus is not just a mouth. Oh, that's key and cornerstone. But if all you do is preach, people starve to death. People face sickness alone and they die with lack of comfort and with lack of care. Marriages fall apart. Children go astray. Man, we've got to have the hands and feet of Jesus also. And so what we see the apostles saying is, hey, we're going to proclaim the word of God and we need you godly men in the congregation to get with the people and live out actively serving the needs of the people as a flesh in fleshing the word of God. That's what these seven did. They weren't preaching the word, although some of them did preach and some of them were great evangelists. We know that from Stephen. But notice, they, they were out there meeting the needs of the people. So this is the story we get. And what, what does God do with this? Well, verse 7 tells us that the word of God went forward with great power. The word of God increased among them. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You know, it's interesting as you think about this with me. The word of God increased. The number of the disciples greatly multiplied. And the priests came to know Christ. Why, if you've talked to me this week, I've talked about this with you. What in the world is happening with this special caveat for the priests? Luke didn't do that accidentally. Well, there's two things I think going on here. If you look at 5, chapter 5, the story is that the priests are opposing the church. The high priest specifically is opposing the work of the church. And so when the church gets busy preaching Christ and serving the people, it's the priests who are hearing it the most because they're all in the temple. We might say they're a captive audience. They have a job to do and they can't leave. And so the word of God is just being preached and preached. But if it was only being preached, you see, these servants, that's what priests were. They were servants. They might be able to group up together and say, yeah, this Johnny-come-lately sect out here, these Christian folks, followers of Christ. All they ever do is stand in the portico and shout about, Jesus Christ is great. Jesus Christ is the reason. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of our life. But, man, when they look, look how they treat one another. We take care of our poor. We watch after the widows. They've never read Psalm 68 where it says that God is the father of the, of the fatherless and the Husband to the widow. They, they're not living it out. We're living it out. But you know what happened in chapter 6 when they started preaching and serving? Those priests said, uh, these people are different. They don't just talk about Jesus. They act like Jesus. They love like Jesus. They give respect to others. They care for their needy. They're outdoing us in good works. And a great revival broke out. And these priests came in to the faith. What will be the result of a rightly ordered church? Revival. Revival. The church has lost its power in our day for many reasons, but one of them is we've given up the preaching of God's word. Most pastors are leaving the pastorate. Most pastors are leaving the pastorate, but they're still working in the church. Most pastors are swamped with a to-do list that includes everything but studying God's word and praying for God's people. 
And so the church members are running to the pastor's office with this problem and that problem and this service opportunity and that ministry and this and the other. And by the end of the week, that man is weighed down. And he's thinking, I can't get all this done. And then Friday night rolls around, and he's like, I hadn't even thought about a text for Sunday. Oh, God, help me. And he goes up there and does his very best. He hasn't soaked in God's word. He hasn't prayed. Why? Because it, not because he's a bad guy, but because he's distracted with so many good things. The church isn't rightly ordered, and so the people of God suffer. And there's a famine in the land, and they're not being fed the word of God. At that point, the church is very much like a civic organization. Fellowship, people come together, we meet each other's needs. We're kind of like the bank of Jesus. You know, if you have something you need, come to us. We'll, we'll, we'll give you our handout, and you go on your merry way. It becomes a lot of things, but it's not the living, breathing organism that God intended to be. Because what fuels that, the living, breathing organism, is the preaching and the prayer of the pastors. So who does all this stuff? It's still got to be done. It's good stuff. Choose from among yourselves the best you've got. Choose men with great reputations, filled with the Holy Spirit and wise, and set them to the task of meeting the needs of the people every day. That's a rightly ordered church, and I still believe, though it's descriptive, not prescriptive, if that is done over the long haul, what will happen? Revival will take place. I don't define revival by only huge numbers of people and revival in the sense of lots of conversions, though that is fantastic and it actually happened here. I define revival as a fresh move of the Spirit of God in the people of God. If we rightly order the church around the person and work of Jesus Christ, having a mouth of Jesus and a hands and feet of Jesus, I believe the Spirit of God will work among us in a way that revives every heart in the membership. Every person will become devoted. Every person will be sacrificial. Nobody will have to twist arms and manipulate people. Man, people will rise up and say, I saw, it's, 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 it's my pleasure to serve in this way. That's what we want. That's what we see. And we have to have deacons to do this. Now, that we have this descriptive passage, let me just quickly say we are blessed with deacons among us. Many deacons among us. We had dwindled down to almost, uh, I think, like six, maybe seven deacons at one point. Six, yeah. And, and by God's grace and by your setting apart, we have added to that number to where we have now, I think, 19 total men serving and organizing the work of the church. And they are working hard at it. They're dividing out the work among themselves, their giftings and their passions. And there's a lot of things beginning to, you haven't seen it all yet, but it's, it's coming. It's coming. And so you already did some of this, setting apart with good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom. But I want to run over to 1 Timothy and just look with you for a moment at 1 Timothy 3, which describes the, the office, the person of the. So what we've been looking at in Acts 6 is the precursor to the office. They didn't call them deacons. They're, this was not the diaconate proper. But this is the precursor to what became the deacons in the local church. Okay, This is the groundwork being laid. And so, as the church developed and grew and matured, we know in Paul's pastoral epistles, he tells his men, hey, 
you need to be, have men um, who are desiring and aspiring to be pastors. And he gives their character traits in the first seven verses. That's the office of pastor and teacher. Elder is what it's called. Elder, pastor, teacher. Same office. Same group of men. A plurality of those men will give themselves to prayer and the word. The spiritual vision and oversight of the church. Okay, but look right after that in verse 8. 1 Timothy 3, verse 8. Deacons likewise. In other words, it's not like there's the A team and the B team. It's, it's all the same team. And here's one I want to throw on you really quickly. You church members who say, well, I'm neither of these, so this message isn't for me. Actually, you're wrong. Everyone that's a member of Grace Fellowship should be striving in the Spirit to live to the qualifications given in this passage. Every single member, man, woman, child, should be looking and saying, who can I emulate? They look to the pastors and elders. They look to the deacons. They say, those men are worthy of emulation. I'm going to live my life like they live their life. I'm going to value what they value. I'm going to give my time to what they give their time to. I'm going to talk about what they talk about. Every single member, man, woman, child, should be striving to be more Christ-like. And the way we become more Christ-like is we imitate those who are Christ-like. We are discipled, in other words, by these people. So what we have is a flock, and inside that flock, every member is, is strategic. Every member is important. Every member has a role to play. Two roles that are set aside in leadership are pastor, teachers, and deacons, okay, in the local congregation. Are they different than sheep? No, they are sheep first. Your pastors and your deacons are sheep under the hand of God. They never are elevated beyond that. I know that may shock you because you're like, no, no, no. The churches I grew up in, there's this hierarchy. It's like church member, you know, and then church member emeritus. They've been around a long time, and they have assigned seats, and you better not sit in it. Okay? And then out of that really, really good group right there, we get a hierarchy of deacon. They're over the congregation. They're over. They're, they're a step ahead and outside of the flock kind of. And then, man... We don't know if they're crazy or if they're godly men, but they got these guys that take on the work of speaking for God. That, that's scary. They're, they're even higher up. That's not how God built his church. There is one head. His name is Jesus Christ. And then there is a flock. And what God did through the Spirit is gifted that flock with all kinds of gifts, all kinds of people through the Spirit. If you're here, a member of Grace Fellowship, you are a Spirit-filled saint which means you should be living up to these qualifications. And through the process of living up to those qualifications, the church steps back and goes, hey, uh, we've been watching Carlton live. He has this ability to teach, and people seem to want to follow him. Let's give him an opportunity to teach more, and he teaches more. And we say, this man has a calling on his life. And the church identifies the guy who's already been pastoring because he has a desire to pastor, he's gifted to do it. He's just doing it. So here's what I'm telling you. You don't need a title. If you have a desire, it's a trustworthy saying that it's a good thing. If you have a desire to be a pastor, pursue being a pastor. Go hard after it. Shepherd the people God's put in your life. If it's one person, if it's ten people, whoever it is, shepherd them towards Jesus. Build into their life the word of God. And God not only does that, but he says, man, there's this, there's this guy in our congregation. 
Man, I see the life that he lives where he's serving and he's giving and he's practically applying wisdom to very difficult cases and he seems to be carried along in the spirit and he has great character. I think he's a deacon. The church then recognizes the man who's already deaconing among them. The problem is too often we recognize people for the wrong reason and we put them in an office and they don't live up to the qualifications and they don't have a desire to be in the office. And so it's like, well, gosh, my rotation, i got to serve three years over here in this ball and chain. I go to these meetings and sit on a board. I hate what I do, man. Golly, this is killing me. I'd rather be watching Monday Night Football. Instead, we got to go work on the gutters at some, some lady's house. I'm serious. Wow, these people are always whining about their financial needs. I don't want to be benevolent. What, what, I mean, we're just giving them money? What is this? This is America. You know, there's deacons like that in God's church, unfortunately. And we wonder why the lost world looks and goes, they don't love each other very well. Because their pastors aren't giving to the word and their deacons aren't serving anybody. They're all sitting in an office. They all got the title, but there's nothing getting done. And so then the church gets out of order and there's a lot of bickering and fighting and disagreement. Because there's all this confusion. God has rightly ordered his church. Look what we should be looking for when we're looking for a deacon. I'm just going to read it. It's very self-evident. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, men of good reputation. Not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Let them live for a while among the people. Let's watch their lives and see if if we can emulate. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This builds not only the man up, but the church up. When we have men that fit these qualifications. And I've already told you, we have men that meet these qualifications. Now, I know as I was reading that really quickly, there's some things that stood out to you. And we could have a lot of conversation about those things. One thing we notice about this list of good reputation, filled with the Spirit, and of wisdom, I believe that's what Paul's done. He's put some, some meat on the bones for us in 1 Timothy chapter 3. <clears throat> but listen to me, they are not necessarily objective. They are subjective. If you start supplying these things like a legalist, well, it says he has to have a wife, so therefore he must be married. Well, that's a wrong understanding, you know. As we look at it, it says that he should be the wife, the, a one-woman man. He should be a one-woman man, managing his children well. If he has children, his household ought to be well-ordered, it's saying. If you start looking at it as and thinking you're doing a good thing by saying, well, the deacons at our church, they can't drink alcohol. That's the surest way that we can be sure that they don't have a problem with alcohol is we just make it a law. They sign a covenant. We can't drink. Well, yeah, but you might, you might cover up a bigger problem, which is that the man's not moderate, temperate, nor does he have self-control. Yeah, but he's not a drunk. I know, but he's just he's out of control in every other area of his life. Well, if a man's been divorced one time in his life, it don't matter when it happened or where it happened or how it happened, pre-Christ or post-Christ, none of that matters. It just means he's disqualified. No, that sounds great. 
until you get in the real world. And you got two or three guys in the room who are womanizers. They've only been married one time, though. They meet the qualification. But every woman in the church feels so icky around him because he's a flirt, because he doesn't have wives, eyes for his wife only. But we're keeping the precept. We don't have divorced deacons. We're better. Let's pop our collar and stand before the Lord. And Jesus might really be saying to us, you know that man who lost his marriage in his 20s but has lived a faithful life, who's followed me and served the people, he gives himself sacrificially to everyone around him. And he is an, a life of emulation. He's known as a man in good repute. You left him out. On a standard that was your standard, not my standard. So often we take the things of God and we sound real godly. But we're going beyond what the Bible says. We don't need to do that. We need to focus on what God has said to us. He's given us good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And then Paul, by God's Spirit, gave us a better list, a fuller list that we might look at his life and know is that true? You might actually have somebody that meets every single one of these qualifications on paper, on the surface. But when you get around him, he is hard. He does not, have, he does not care much for people at all. You could not say that he seems to give one cent about whether the Spirit of God is in something or not. But boy, he's got his life in order. He's not fit to serve as a deacon because the life worth emulating is not only well-ordered, but it's spirit-filled. You see, it's just not that simple. What the church started doing just a few decades ago, mainly among us Baptists, mainly, not only, is we made the list easier for us to digest, and we put rules in place God never put in place, but boy, we feel good about the men we got serving in our offices. We need to be wise. We need to be prayerful. We need to be searching and looking for who's living out this life. And then we need to humbly accept when God has placed us here to be in these most precious roles. Now, there's one other thing I want to get to, and then I want to close with an encouragement. So I know some of you are just brimming, like, is he going to say it? Is he going to talk about it? It's clearly in that passage You notice the ESV makes an interpretive choice. I want to be clear about this. They made an interpretive choice in verse 11. And in verse 11, they, they made a church choice based off of the word in the scripture to interpret it as wives likewise. But, but if you've got a good ESV or others, in four, if you look at footnote four, it says, or wives likewise, or women likewise. So what we have here is a Greek word that's not so clear about whether it's only wives, or whether it's, it's the wives of deacons, wives in general, or older women in general. That's being honest with the text. Every time a translator translates the Bible for you, they make interpretive decisions. And by God's grace, we have councils of men that are very well skilled at it, and they do a fantastic job. 
But when you take it without digging deeper, you can often put a precept in place that wasn't ever intended by the Holy Spirit. The word here is general for women. Yes, it can mean wives. Yes, it can mean wives of these men. It can mean all of those things. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Well, let me give you some great, uh, hopefully, uh, encouragement. A great group of scholars that we so much respect and revere through history and in our day interpret this text. Alexander Strzok would be a great example of that. As saying that the wives of deacons must also be qualified. You don't have a deacon unless you have a deacon and his wife. The two serve in the office. The man serves and the woman serves. If she doesn't meet the qualifications of verse 11, then no matter how good of a man he is, he's not fit for the office of deacon. Okay? That is a legitimate way to look at this text. Okay? There's another group of godly men that we revere and churches who they look at this text and they say the word broadly means women. So what we should do is apply it broadly to women, Christian godly women who are members of your congregation who have met the qualifications listed by Paul should serve in the office as deaconesses. Now, I know, I know, you're worried if I'm getting fired. (laughs) Some of you, that upsets you. I get it. But listen to me, just be patient with me as I explain this. The reason that that gives so much of us problems is because of our culture, not because of the Bible. Okay, so we, we steep in a culture that still has the hangover effect and sometimes the active presence of chauvinism. Well, I tell you what, I ain't going to a church that's got women in an office. Well, why not? Well, because that ain't their place. Well, who said? The Bible? Well, I don't know where the verse is, but somewhere I've been in these discussions. Been in these discussions. That's sinful. If that's in your heart, that is a sin. Where that is in your heart, you need to root it out by the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to simply say, God, I I value men over women, and you value men and women. God, I value men like image bearers and women like just the leftover help that God created. And what I need to understand is there is no image in God without male and female. So that's, that's possible why you get upset when you hear a pastor like me say, there is the possibility that we would have women deacons. And you rise up. So just check that. But that's not the only reason. We're also not just in a culture in America, but we're in a culture in, from our Baptist backgrounds. A lot of us were Baptists. About 1950, 40, 50, during the war, World War, things changed. We don't all know why. But what we started seeing in those 1950s was a shift in this office of deacon. The deacons started acting like pastors a lot. They they were no longer just deacons. They became quasi-pastors. And they became board members, which is also something that's not in this text. You shall sit on the board and the CEO, quote-unquote pastor, comes to report to you. You represent the people. Y'all have a business meeting every month. 
so that y'all can keep that man straight. That's not in the Bible either. But see, if you have that, if you have the blending of the pastor-deacon role, you cannot have women in that role. You cannot. It's ungodly. Because God has said men shall be the pastors of his church. Men and only men. And so if you, if you blend the roles, which the Baptist church made the decision to do that, many Baptists, not all, but many made that decision, the blending of the roles meant we can't have women in, the, in this role. They did a godly thing back at the beginning, but we lost the reason why they did it. Because if you go beyond the 1900s and you go back into the church history, the most conservative Baptist churches had deaconesses in the church. Why? Because they were rightly ordered. They had deacons and they had elders. The two were distinctly different. The role of the deacon was to serve the body. Serve the body. Not to teach the word. Not to stand on the authority of spiritual vision. But to practically meet the needs of the congregation. And to bring out the practical living out of the vision of the church. Now, I'm not a pragmatist. But let me finish this by saying, I want to encourage you. We have godly men and godly women who live this role out every single day at Grace Fellowship. We are so blessed. Some of the greatest servants among us are women. They serve quietly. They serve respectfully. They serve passionately. And they meet the very needs that so often get unmet in other churches. So women, I want you to hear from your pastors. We love you. We honor you. And we revere you and look up to you as servants in God's church. We want you to hear, we see you. We see you. And so, will we have women deacons? I want to leave it foggy. Why? Why do I want to leave it foggy? Because I'm not the dictator of Grace Fellowship. I'm a pastor. And I serve on a group of pastors. And they can tell you, at least some of them can tell you, that in 2003, I didn't stand in the middle of the table, but I pounded it pretty hard that we should have women in this office. But there were good, godly men in that room with much wisdom that said, hey, it's not time yet. Be patient. And so this young buck had the bit pulled tight and just stopped and kept praying and kept trying to empower through encouragement the women in our group. And the pastors have done that and other men have done that. And I believe we are growing towards a time when we will recognize the servants that have been serving their hearts out among us with the title I pray for that day, but I, I commit to you, I will not force that day because that's not what pastors do. That's not what pastors do. So your pastors see you, all of them, and all of them respect you, ladies, and all of them want to say collectively, if you walk away from the services you're giving us, this place will fall apart pretty quick. <laughs> we are fully aware of that. But men, we also have so many great men serving. 
it thrills my heart to see how many men in our midst are giving their time, their talents, their energy, not just because they have a title, but because they love God and they love his people. They're giving it in benevolence. They're giving it in maintenance. They're giving it, giving it in evangelism. They're giving their time to uh, help uh, meet the benevolent needs of the church. They're going and teaming up and going to people's houses and fixing gutters and building porches and, 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 and propping up roofs and doing all kinds of stuff that you might not know anything about because they're just quietly going about the hands and feet work of the body. We want to honor you and we want your kind men and women, to multiply among us. So I want to end by saying everyone is invited into service. If you're in this church, we invite you to dig inside yourself and know what is my gift and what is my ability and what is my passion, and we want you to put it to work among God's people. Why? Because the, the word will increase and the spirit of God will increase among us and revival will take place. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time we've had. We pray, God, for your wisdom, for your spirit, for your, Lord, your presence to guide us. Thank you for the deacons you've blessed us with. Thank you, God, that they are men that are of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and also wisdom. We thank you for the women who are serving so valiantly day in and day out. We pray, God, that more and more would come here to serve. Not to serve themselves, but to serve you and to lay down their lives as a sacrifice on your altar each and every day. Help us all to do that. Help us to stay, God, close to you. Because in you, we will be both the mouth and the hands and feet of our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand and sing Build My Life together as a response. Mm -hmm.